This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. My guest today is Kevin Sharp. Kevin and I met in the fall of 1990 when we became classmates at Vanderbilt Law School. President Obama appointed Kevin to the federal bench, uh, which is a lifetime appointment. It is a job that once you are appointed, um, almost everyone stays on the bench until they retire. That is not what Kevin chose to do, and he's going to explain to you in episode one why he reached the decision that he needed to resign from the bench and move on to do something else. Uh, it's, a, it's a story of courage. It's a story of uh, believing and acting on the oath of office that you take. Our conversation ran fairly long because after he leaves the bench, uh, an amazing thing starts to unfold for him, which you're just going to have to hear to believe. So I've broken the episode into two parts. Uh, please note that uh, at the beginning of episode one, there are some technical issues. We recorded this by Zoom, and there was a little bit of internet lag that happened a couple times. No big deal. It does smooth out and go away um, about 10 or 15 minutes in, so you won't, you won't hear it anymore. Uh, so without further ado, I bring you Kevin Sharp. My guest today is Kevin Sharp. Kevin and I met, check this out, Kevin, 30 years ago this month. When we both started law school at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee in the fall of 1990. Since then, um, Kevin's done a lot. Uh, You have, um, well, even before that, um, that was law school. But before that, you'd been in the Navy, right? That's right. Right. Did you leave high school and enlist or how did you get in the Navy? Yeah, so I I, uh, had not planned on to college, much less law school. I worked at an oil refinery. I worked at a car wash, did odd jobs here and there. Driving in to one of my, uh, you know, uh, jobs that I didn't care for, I saw a Navy recruiting station and I pulled in and I said, where do I find send me somewhere? (laughs) And that sending me somewhere changed my life because I got out of my town and I saw this world. It really was during the day. And what town had it been? What town? I I I was from Memphis. Okay. Um, and uh, all of the stuff that comes with being a Memphian. Um, and all of a sudden, I find myself, you know, with a, a, an extremely important job chasing Soviet submarines in the South China Sea. I'm a 19-year-old kid who's now seeing the world and, uh, and coming together with other people from around the country uh, performing this job. For, for the United States, and that really changed my life. And I realized that there was more to it than turning a wrench or, you know, uh, being a radio operator. And then I wanted to go to law school. So I wanted the, to so people. for reasons that will become clear later, I'm going to ask you this question, to which I know the answer. When you joined the Navy, did you take an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America? Absolutely. And <laughs> all right. Then. That became, and when I raised my hand and did that, all of a sudden you realize, well, wait a minute, this is a pretty damn important thing that I am agreeing to do. Yeah. Support and defend the Constitution of the United States yeah. of America. And you're standing there and you are, you know, the first time you've stood at attention and your hand is raised and your head's about to be shaved. And this is a pretty weighty thing. And I took it very seriously. And that's what those obligations or what led me to, to go to law school and continue on that path. Okay. I'd never been to college. And so, so you go, to, ahead, you go to, to college, you get out of the Navy. How long were you in the Navy? I did four years, uh, spent time in the Philippines, the Thailand, Japan, 
uh, Guam, Okinawa, all the places my grandfather served as a Marine during the Second World War. That's pretty cool. So you go to college. Where'd go you to go college, to school? Go to, go to end up going to a community college because I was broke as well. <laughs> and so I went to a but community college. But you had that, you had that uh, GI Bill, right? No, not at that time. They had something else. And so the maximum amount you could get was $8,000. Oh, so that I doesn't go very far. Uh, but I'm a California resident, and you could go to a community college for $50 a semester. So, so you finished. Yeah. You, you, where did you end up finishing college? I ended up finishing college. I came back home to Memphis and finished at Christian Road College, okay. soon to be University. And got then my, uh, my there. All right. And then uh, law school at Vanderbilt, get out of law Vanderbilt school. and oh. become a lawyer, take another oath. Take, that's right. Take okay. another oath. Uh, um, same, same one, different circumstances to fit to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Right. Uh, so, you went to work yeah. for Congress for a while, right? So I practiced for a couple of years and then um, Congress created a new office that was enforcing the labor and employment laws as they relate to the legislative branch. And I went up there as one of the first lawyers to work in the uh, office of com- um, swearing to support and defend the Constitution of the United States and make sure that Congress, this other branch of government, complied with the laws that they had passed. Okay. Uh, and after that, back into private practice? Back into private practice, we set this office up and uh, back to Nashville. Uh, in private practice. And I'm now representing, at that time, representing plaintiffs in a small civil practice doing discrimination work um, and plucked out of obscurity um, when President Obama needed someone to fill a seat on the Middle District. uh, (laughs) Here I am. Uh, Yeah. Well, if you want to say more, you can, but that's not exactly how that works, right? You it's not, not how that works. It's And it's part of what led me to the decision to come back into private practice. So I get a phone call from um, the uh, White House saying uh, on a Friday saying, how soon can you get up here? We want to talk to you about this open seat. Um, you know, I tell them I'll see you Monday. And then the process began. We were talking about how one goes from, you said, obscurity to the federal bench. Um had you put your name in? How does that, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't even know how that works. Do you just express interest or what, what is, how does that work? You know, here's how it worked in this case. Usually it's a, it's a, a lengthy lobbying process. I had not thought about it, but as I understand it, I, I ended up seeing my name in an article. Um, after the president, President Obama won that election, there was a lot of speculation on who is going to take this seat. And so, uh, and how did that, I don't remember, how did that seat get empty? Was it a new seat or was it vacated? No, it was a seat that President Bush had nominated someone and he uh, couldn't get through the process. It got uh, hung up. It got hung up. Okay. And so uh, when President Obama wins, that seat is still open. It was it was Robert Eccles' old seat. And so okay. it had been open for a number of years. Ken Whitehouse writes an article uh, speculating who is going to get this uh, nod. Now, I hadn't thought about it. And as I learned from him later is writing this story and he doesn't have enough names. <laughs> so he just throws mine into the hat. He's Not got a couple was, of people that definitely want it. And then uh, right. this guy. 
Yeah. And then he's thinking, I don't have enough names to make this an article. Who else is out there? And somehow he's so you, you go from stalking horse to uh, nominated. Right. Uh, un- un- unintended stalking horse to uh, nominee. Right. Um, and then so I get a call from the White House and I Washington. They have vetted me. They continue to vet me. The Department of Justice then starts doing their own vetting and investigation, then sends me to the White House for more vetting. That then gets the FBI involved. They do their own investigation of me. That nomination is then, once they, everyone is satisfied, that nomination is sent to Senate Judiciary Committee. They do their own investigation of you, and they ask the association who does its own investigation of you. So you know, all of this, they don't want to miss anything. They don't want to miss anything. And they want to know that someone who's about to get a lifetime appointment has the judgment and the temperament and the, and the skill set to perform this job. You realize an aside completely unrelated to you, but no one will ever pass a background check in 20 years. That's right. It's going to be tough. (laughs) Social media and camera phones and Twitter and everything else. The, the the they're going to have to move the goalposts. Um, or, or right, they'll move the goalposts because they just won't care. Those things won't mean anything. Right. Oh, things that was that, a long time ago, and it was just Twitter or whatever. Right, and that's true today. Things that are said and done today, just you know, six years ago, have been disqualifying. Right, and now it's just the norm. Um, I don't. I mean, I'd like to think that like we'll all come to some kind of you know like consensus about this. But the recent confirmation hearings make me think we're a long way from that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I don't want to go through it again. Uh, I, I got in there before it was blood sport. Yeah. Although there was. Well, I don't I mean, it's always been kind of that way, but I'm just more cons- like I'll just be the first one to say. I mean, if we had had phones in our pockets and social media when I was in Gainesville, I would probably wouldn't even been admitted to the bar. But I'm not going to speak for you, but well, um we we won't go there. Okay. It, it didn't so, happen. All right. So you get you get nominated. You eventually get confirmed, and you take the bench. What year is this? This is 2011. All right. So when in 2011, I, you go on the bench. Right. So all right. In 2011, I take the bench. Let me ask you this, because I've asked I've I've had some judges on the podcast, and I always want to know because I think this would be the part where it would be really difficult for me. When you hit the bench, do you suddenly have a whole lot of new friends? You know, no. As a matter of fact, I have fewer friends, friends, because it, bec- it becomes very isolating. That's the thing that would kill me would be like, yeah. like, I can't even like, you got to be so careful about the way you hang. And out. I did. And I think that I was more careful than most because I didn't want there to be any appearance that someone was going to get, uh, you know, fair or shake or someone got some advantage because they knew me. And so I really pulled back. And and isolated myself more than I otherwise probably would have been required to do. But I wanted if someone came into my courtroom and on the federal bench they come from all over the country. I wanted the the opposing counsel, you know, to be able to say there is nothing here. This is this is not the judge's buddy. Right. Um, there's no you know, home cooking. There's no you don't home cooked. You're not going to get home cooked in my court. Um, so that, I found the opposite of that to be true. Well, when I say, did you have more friends? What I mean is, did you have more superficial um, 
Did people laugh at your jokes? More? People thought I was a hell of a lot funnier than I <laughs> That's what I mean. Really yeah, was. That. <laughs> a hell of a lot smarter. You probably got um, a lot more invitations to things. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was probably the biggest thing, right? You could get a laugh. Man, you got a you got a sweet parking place. You got a great parking spot. Um, you know, people uh, opened the door for you and people stood up when you walked in the room, which was which was really unusual. And I never got used to that. And I'm glad that I didn't. I never <laughs> you saw go, this. Yeah, because up. in a fairly short period of time, you go from E1 to federal judge. Right. Uh, right. E, you're, you're an E1. Um, literally, though, the there's an equivalency. Right. So a federal judge for protocol purposes is equivalent to different ranks, right? It's a government thing. Mm -hmm. So a district court judge gets the same protocol as a two-star admiral. So literally I had been a petty officer in the Navy (laughs) and now I'm a (laughs) two-star. Holy Uh, cow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I called all the, that's like that. You did, you outranked ambassadors. Yeah. Yeah. Wow! All, all the all the officers that I worked with and still stayed in touch with, I I called them to let them know I now outrank you, <laughs> and you will salute. You will salute me. Here's my little flag, two star <laughs> flag I kept in my office just to remind oh, them. But, but you know the important thing was though that I I as soon as I was confirmed and got my got my paperwork from the president, I went over to the courthouse and Judge Campbell Todd Campbell swore me in. And so now I'm doing that oath again and I'm standing in his chambers and my hand is raised and I am swearing to support and defend the constitution of the United States. There were two important things about that. One was I'm taking that oath again. And that oath is, I take it very seriously. Yeah. This is the, the, this is the first time that you can actually like really do stuff to people after taking an oath. Right. It was one of those things that, that Todd Campbell and I talked about. And, and that was the most important thing you're going to do on the bench is on the criminal side. It's not going to be complicated. The law is not going to be complicated, but it's going to be really, really hard because you're now messing with people's liberty. This yeah, is, and in federal hard. court for people that might be listening that don't really know in federal court, they don't even blink and hand out 500 month sentences. No, that's right. They are incredibly harsh and it, and it throws people, it throws the defendants off because they may be used to a state system. Right. Where they flatten out a sentence in three years. Now yeah. we're talking about 300 months. There's parole. There there were a number of people who came in and I never, you know, this argument, how it, it cuts both ways would say, wait, you can't give me a minimum 30 year sentence. I've never served any time before. And I'm looking at that going, I know. And this is why you're shocked, but you've done the same conduct. Right. In the state system, it gets you probation. In the federal system, it gets you 30 years. Yeah, I've been in court. I've been in court before in state criminal court. And I, I've come over 30 years now, I guess, or 27 or whatever it is. You know, you start to you start to see stuff, right? That that the average person in the courtroom doesn't. And I've and I know some of the marshals, some of the US marshals. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular look on the face of a defendant when he comes to his arraignment in state court and a couple of gentlemen come from the back row and uh, the judge is in on it, you know, but the defendant shows up thinking he's being arraigned in state court for something that might catch him six or eight years. 
And um, the next thing with you know, probation, with the possibility of parole. Right. right. And then, and the next thing you know, he's, he's having a quiet conversation with two men he's never met who are explaining to him that they're federal marshals. Right. And they have an indictment to serve and, uh, and papers and they're taking him. They know what that means. And what that means is the game just totally changed. Right. And um, they are now looking at life or decades. Right. right. Without the possibility of parole. Yeah. So your time you're going to get is your time. Now you can get good behavior. So but you 15%, can, right? 15% is what you can shave, you know, 54 days for every year. So, uh, you know, it's a different world over there. And so I took that part of the job extremely seriously. When I said sentences imposed as stated, you know, the marshals put the cuffs on somebody and they were taken to a holding cell until they were delivered to whatever yeah. And again, for there are people that listen to the podcast that are not lawyers in the federal court system. The sentencing is there's very little discretion. The the I mean, there's some, but but the, the ranges are brutal. And even even the even if you wanted to exercise maximum discretion towards leniency, you're still handing out decades. Right. So there it's it used to be that there was no discretion. You had to go by the sentencing guidelines and it was mandatory. And then a case of, you know, versus Booker said, no, they are advisory, but it's where you start. And so then you figure out what's the guideline range and they're going to incredibly high. And then you can move from there and you can vary or you can depart out of explain it. Um, and it's not easy to do you. There were times though, when you have mandatory sentences where I, I sentenced one uh, young man, he was 27, to 15 years in prison on a mandatory sentence where I more than likely would have given him 15 months had I had discretion. And the time wasn't <clears throat> so serious of that kind of that kind of a sentence. Um, and there there's there's real, no real reason to destroy his life because you take a 27-year-old, give him 15 years, he's going to do 13 years, and now what you're, you're sending out somebody who's, who's looking at 40 years old who doesn't now has lost their family, lost their job, uh, their children may have been moved to wards of the state. Um, you've lost all of those relationships, and you, you are unemployable. Yeah. The other thing that happens in the federal system is that a, a person sentenced in Nashville, Tennessee could wind up serving in Kansas or Oregon. Right. So, and I mean, you can, I mean, good. it's not like mom can come see you on Sundays. That's right. Now there was some changes in the, with the first step act that president Trump signed back in uh, 18, 2018 that allows them, gives a presumption that you should move folks within 500 miles of their home. But You've got security classifications. There are all kinds of things that yeah, really gang affiliations that. and all kinds of things that yeah. they have to take into consideration. Right. And so does it really happen? I haven't seen it happen. But you know what? 500 miles might as well be 5,000 miles for some of the people who are, are caught up in this. Well, that's right. Right. Because they, you already had just the ripple effect is unbelievable. But now, even if they had the ability to have a car and they're not using the bus system, you've taken the person who was providing some financial support away from them. And now you've got, say, generally it's going to be a male. Now you've turned someone into a single mother who's got to do their own job, take care of their kids. 
how are you probably has been using public transportation. How are you going to get 500 miles away? Yeah. The say the, the, the mom or the wife or the girlfriend or whatever may very well have arrived at the sentencing hearing on a Metro bus. Right. And you, you're not guaranteed once you get there, you could be turned away at the door. You know, it might, depending on the, the prison, um, it may not be unusual to show up on visitation day and then just get word. Sorry, we're on lockdown. Yeah. Or that's you, you wore the wrong thing. All right. Or you wore the wrong thing. Uh, come back next week. You got dressed. So that wore on you, right? That, that wore on me and particularly the mandatory minimums. I, I, we were, what we were doing was not making people safer. We were making things harder. Uh, now, every once in a while, a mandatory minimum might, uh, by coincidence, be the proper sentence. But uh, I, I maybe saw that one. <clears throat> Generally, what we were doing was putting down sentences that were overly and punitive. And that was not the, that was not the purpose of sentencing. There are lots well, of. Sentences. I mean, it seems to me, and I'll be the first one to admit I'm terribly cynical. But it seems to me that what's happened over time and maybe this starts with the Nancy Reagan's war on drugs, but what, what seems to have happened over time is that new, some congressman, some new congressman runs on a platform of law and order and says, when I get to Washington, no one's, if you're, if, if they're a drug dealer, they're going to jail for life. No one goes to Congress and says, you know what guys, I think maybe we're locking up small time street dealers for a little too long. <laughs> right. Nobody, you don't get, that's not a winning campaign slogan. Uh -uh. You don't get elected and reelected by being perceived as soft on crime. And the answers, you know, as you gave the, the losing campaign, which was let's figure out what the problem is. That's complicated. And that's how it's way complicated, right? There's so many levels to that. And I saw it when I had a case on school resegregation that, there's so many and it's, and it involves economic policy and it involves transportation and it involves education and it involves social services and how all of those come together to, to lower the crime rate and trying to figure all that out. And to create opportunity to, right. to break the cycle of poverty right. that has existed in this country for 200 years. And whether you think the policies are more liberal policies or more conservative policies doesn't really matter because mm -hmm. nobody's going to try them because it's complicated and I can't get it in a soundbite. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit in a 30 second commercial. No, right. It doesn't work. And the, even the, though, and I, I guess I'm, I probably consider myself more libertarian than anything, but I mean, I can make the economic argument that whatever it costs, whatever investments are necessary, it's, it, it'll take three generations to reverse this at least probably. That's right. Um, but that investment, massive as it may be, in the long run for four generations later will be will be repaid. Because you you're taking people, you're you're taking assets and you're turning them into liabilities. Right? If I take someone who is capable of being productive, and the numbers that you're talking about are really easy and that research has been done. What it costs in education and transportation and making Economic opportunities is a fraction of what it will cost to house them. In well, and never mind. Add in all the all the direct subsidies that are handed out in lieu of actual opportunity or education, like 
you could probably over the long run cut food stamps, WIC, uh, all kinds of direct entitlements. And if you just gave people a better shot to begin uh, with. Right. I agree with that. It's as part of the federal sentencing, you get what's called a pre-sentence report. So before I sentence someone, I'm given their life history. Yeah. How many of them, how many of people that you handed out 25 years to had ever had the chance to go to college? No, that's right. Or, or sometimes I didn't have the chance to finish high school or elementary or not elementary. I did those or junior high, but usually about ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade is where people started dropping off. And they're in the street and they're in the street and you know, crime becomes their way of survival. They're going to eat. Yeah, it's so, a job. It's, it's funny. And, and the number of times that people talked about that before you can take uh, a guilty plea, I have to ask a series of questions, make sure they're competent and understand what they're doing. And one of the easy questions I would always ask is what you, what has your employment history been since getting out of school? And the number of times where someone would say, I've been selling drugs. And I would say, that's not a job. That's criminal activity. Have you ever been employed? And, you know, they would look at me, these are 35, 40 year old men and go, no, if, if that right. doesn't count. I've no. never had a W2. <laughs> I've right. never, I've never filed right. taxes. Yeah. Oh, so now I did. I, and, and, you know, I mean, they made choices, but what choice, what were the, what were the list of choices that they right. really had? Your opportunities are down. I know we're going to sound like, uh, you know, a bunch of bleeding heart liberals, but I agree. No, with, I'm a pragmatist. Right. And, and look, I came on, one of the guys that I've worked with is uh, a gentleman named Mark Holden, who used to be general counsel with Coke Industries and now works with uh, Americans for Prosperity, right? I don't think anybody would call those liberal organizations, but they've done the research and they are big criminal justice reform advocates because they understand you're taking, you're taking assets, people who could pay into the system uh, with taxes and with productivity, um, and you're putting them over here in prison where we now pay for them. They're destroying then, families for generations. Right. And then you're going to put them out on the streets and go, okay, uh, don't, I don't want to see you again. Well, what, is, what are they going to do? They, right. they can't work. They don't have a car. And unfortunately, in some, in some places and in, in ways, they're now, they're now cultural heroes. Right. It's not even that they're just, it's not even that they're no better off, they're worse off to return to productive member society. They're actually lionized for having done the time. And what, and what are you going to do if you wanted to be a productive citizen? You got to check the box that says I have a felon conviction. Right. I'm yeah. out. I don't own a car. There was a gentleman, I went to his parole hearing. I was so impressed with him. He was in the state system when he, when I saw him. Uh, and I was so impressed. I went to his parole hearing and he had been denied five times. This was his sixth. And I drove to the state prison, advocated on his behalf, and he was granted parole. But then he gets out. And now what? He's in a halfway house and there's no way for him to get to. Well, I mean, I end up loaning him money, giving him money, really, for a car. Um, uh, so I he, take, start, he probably starts catching driving on suspended and catching two day sentences. <laughs> Right. right. I mean, like then, it just the treadmill, just the treadmill just goes faster and faster. Yeah. You can't you. Get off. yeah. Can't get so off. you but get all of those I, to, to really become frustrated with the system. I, I sentenced three young men, one only 23 years old to life in prison for a nonviolent drug offense. And I said, this is BS. 
this is we are not helping we are hurting um so you were on the bench about how long i don't don't want to skip this part but how long did you stay on the bench i was on the bench for six years it's a lifetime appointment well i was going to say that i mean like to, to make to because i know what happens next and i want you to tell it but just to be clear for listeners when you got appointed to the bench, I'm not going to say it's a cushy job, but it's a permanent job it, with a good retirement plan. It is, a, it is a great, you are paid for life. I am paid as long as I am alive. Um, I can you stay in the job. Until 65. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll pay me until I die. Right. Um, so it, you don't have to like, and it's a prestigious job and it's it a serious a job and it's job. not an easy job, but you don't have to like, it's permanent. Is permanent. My and, time and, is alone. All right. So you get to the point where you're like, we're not doing, we're, we're not doing good here. Oh, right. I, all right. This, I cannot do this in this way. And I had to make a decision after six years of, am I more useful to society? This, this country and this constitution that I have sworn an oath to multiple times, am I fulfilling that obligation better by staying on the bench or better by coming off the bench and talking about these issues. Ultimately, because of the firm that I joined said, if you come join us, we are going to give you the platform you want. Now we got to work, but we're, we want you to talk about those things that you think are important. And the other thing to remember is as a federal judge, you are strictly, you are very strictly confined as to what you can go do politically and what you can say and advocate for even as a private individual. That's right. And, and, like and a, you can't, judges cannot go around demanding prison reform publicly. And I can, well, I about it to the extent it comes up in opinions. Um, okay. You can write about it, but I can write about uh, it. in but a I, case, right. In a but case. like, you can't go, you, the, 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 the rules that govern judges put a, put a real clamp on public advocacy for, uh, right. for policy issues. Yeah, that's right. And so I had to make that decision and decided I'm, I am more useful. I, I am better fulfilling the oath that I have made by coming back into private practice than invention and moaning every time I've got to do something that I think is counterproductive to this society. All right. So let me ask you this question. How many, how many people do you know who had a lifetime appointment who resigned it? Uh, I, I, I spoke to one other. On the phone. And there are there are dozens, hundreds of judges with lifetime appointments. Any at any given time, there are about a thousand. So, six years on the bench. Some of it is chief judge of the district, some meaning you were the number one judge, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Six years on the bench. Um, obviously, you go to judge conferences and hang out with judges. And uh, when did you resign? Uh, April fifteenth of twenty seventeen. All right, so three years, so six years on the bench, three years later, so nine years into this odyssey, you've met one other person who resigned a federal lifetime uh, appointment to the bench. I'm sure there are others out there. I don't have not met them and, and haven't spoken. Let's just say it's let's just say it's rare. It is rare. It is rare because it's re- particularly if you take out the people who do it because of health reasons. Right, right, no, right, but they, but if you if you step down because of a health reason, you're still paid for life. So the, of the folks who have stepped away from it and said, I, I'm done before my lifetime payments kick in, I've met one. I, I mean, let's just, let maybe a handful. Maybe a handful over the okay. years. Yeah. All right. So you leave and you, you, 
you decide it was important to you where you landed. So if you want to speak to that, so I, chance. <laughs> yeah, so, well, that it was important to me. If I couldn't do and say the things that I wanted to do and say at a particular law firm, then I would have come to a different conclusion that I'm better off staying um, if I don't get the platform that I want. And so, these yeah, you guys, didn't just want to go back into plain, straight up plaintiff's work. Right. right. That's not and grind and grind it out on on big federal litigation that moves right. it at uh, plate tectonic plate shift speed. <laughs> yeah. That's not helpful to anyone. I might as well stay where I am. And, and the guys at Sanford Heisler, now Sanford Heisler Sharp say, come on. And you do that. Uh, one of the interesting things I had not been back into private practice very long. And I get a call from a lawyer in Texas. Now this, said, okay. So, so no, no, sorry, not this, this is a different Texas lawyer. Okay. All right. Okay. So I get a call from. I want to. I want to. I want to tee that one up. For yeah. Because I know where yeah. we're headed. This is a different one and okay. relates to that issue. So I get a call from Brittany Barnett, Texas lawyer, who said, "I represent a, a young man named Chris Young. You to life in prison several years ago. Um, I have heard you speak about mandatory minimums and your problems with it, and what you had to do uh, in Chris Young's case, and how that made you feel. Will you help me?" get relief for Chris Young. And so I signed up to help one of the defendants who had been in my courtroom. And that then led to um, a connection with Kim Kardashian. It led to a meeting being invited to the White House by Jared Kushner to meet with um, Kushner, Ivanka, uh, um, Van Jones, Kim Kardashian, uh, Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society at that time, uh, it's where I met Mark Holden at that time was with Coke Industries. And we had a, a, a an in-depth meeting in the White House about clemency issues, uh, how to reform that system, because President Trump was frustrated with it, uh, as I am frustrated with it. The way it works right now is that you go to the DOJ. When you were appointed by President Obama, did you ever think you'd be in uh, the White House to meet with uh, <laughs> close associates of of President Trump? I, I did not. I was very surprised. <laughs> you didn't see that, that one coming? I never saw that coming. Never saw it coming. I walked into that room, uh, walked into the White House, and it was... Uh, it was a meeting in the Roosevelt room and I just, was that the last, was that the, 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 so was the last time that you were in the white house when you went up to be vetted and did you get, did you, did you meet Obama when you were appointed or on the way? I didn't meet him. I met him while I was still on the bench, but I didn't meet him as part of that process. Okay. So, so, so you go to the white house in the, in 2000 something to process the vetting and the application and the appointment. Is the next time you're back at the White House to meet with Ivanka at all? Yep. The next time I'm in the White House, it's me and Jared and Ivanka. And, right. and I'm, I'm seated at the table next to Kim Kardashian and Van Jones is across the, the, the big conference room table in there. It was very surreal. And we're talking about this issue because Department of Justice processes all requests for clemency. Well, they have an inherent conflict because the Department of Justice is the, is the prosecutor. They're the prosecutors. That's the U.S. Attorney's Office. They're so you're essentially you're, you're you're trying to get you're trying to get your mom to unground you when she just told you you're grounded. Right, right. You go to the U.S. Attorney and say, you know, will you admit that you made a mistake, or admit that the person you vilified for so long 
deserves clemency. It just doesn't happen. And to be clear, clemency is a is a relief from a sentence. It's not a vague, it, it's not a pardon. It's it not the erasing. It's the, yeah, it's the it could be a pardon. It's the term for that relief. It could be a okay. pardon, it could be a sentence reduction. Okay. So it's anything that it makes your life better, so to speak. Right. If you're a convicted, if you're convicted in pulling time. Right. And so we have this meeting, a uh, lengthy meeting after that. Um, me, Van Jones, Kim Kardashian, um, two other people go back to Jared Kushner's office and start talking more specifically about how clemency process ought to work. And comes in and says, hey, the president will see you now. Um, I did not know that the president was going to see us. <laughs> so uh, when they come in and go, you know what, let's step into the Oval Office, uh, Van Kim and uh, Judge Sharp, why don't you three come with me? And I end up in the Oval Office with President Trump, uh, Jared, Ivanka, uh, Kim, and Van. And the president is seated at the desk, and we're talking about clemency. And I'm advocating for clemency uh, for Chris Young. Who you had sentenced, who you had personally sentenced to life who I had sentenced to life in prison and also advocating for clemency for a man named Matthew Charles, who uh, became his case became a national story. I had granted him relief on a 34 year sentence. I gave him time served at 21 years. He was released, was out for two years. And then the sixth circuit court of appeals overturned me and told Mr. Charles, he had to go back. I had a, I had a guest on the podcast that had a similar, uh, as a judge, had a similar experience in state court, but that's another, that's another story that you can go listen to an earlier episode. Yeah, here. we'll find that one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's, I'm in the White House and that's what we're talking about, uh, clemency. And we, and we had a lengthy discussion. All right. So having out. been given this opportunity to go back to uh, private practice in a firm that's going to support you in this uh, policy change reform initiative, as long as you also do your day job, um, you, uh, you start advocating for clemency for at, at least two specific individuals. Um, is this where we get to Leonard? It is where we get to Leonard. So this is where we get to Leonard. Now I want to remind you, Kevin was a federal judge. He's been vetted by everybody that does vetting just about, um, what he's about to tell you in part two is going to make you scratch your head and wonder what in the hell is going on here. In part two, we go back to 1975 when Kevin and I were just kids and we pick up from there. Part two is a troubling story. It really puts into a crucible what it means to be uh, a criminal defense lawyer, what it really means to fulfill your oath to support and defend the constitution. Um, it it's an amazing story and if you have any familiarity with uh, the events at ruby ridge or waco or the clive and bundy family more recently then part two is going to just be fascinating to you because it's a story i didn't know um and frankly it is still difficult for me to believe even though i've heard it so it i'm not going to tease it any more than that just trust me when i tell you do not miss part two that drops next week Until then, this is Dana McClendon, 
This is ready for trial. If you like what I'm doing, click the like, the subscribe, all that stuff. Tell your friends. If you think you might be a good guest or know someone who might be, let me know. I'm easy to find. Thank you for listening.